Um, as you know, the lecture, which is entitled for this afternoon, is Hijra and Jihad. And that is because Hijra and Jihad are two expressions of this theme of Al-Walaw Al-Bara, which we have been discussing over the last two days. Uh, we have discussed uh, the general concept of Al-Walaw Al-Bara. We have discussed the rights that Muslims have upon other Muslims. We have discussed uh, who are the awliya of Allah and who are the awliya of Satan. We have discussed then afterwards, um, what did we discuss? It was my lecture, I forgot, <laughs> from this morning. Uh, we had, then we discussed um, uh, abandonment or the hajar of the sinful and the heretics. And I guess before this lecture you also heard a lecture uh, regarding uh, how Muslims are to deal with non-Muslims. And part of an extension of how Muslims deal with non-Muslims is that there are two regulations in this religion. The first is al-Hijrah, which we will be discussing, and jihad, that Muslims have been commanded to fulfill and are is an expression of their faith. Uh, indeed, if you find the uh, books of the earliest Muslims, the scholars of Islam, you will find that these issues are treated in ways different than we treat these issues today. Well, let me repeat myself. If you look at the books of the scholars of Islam, the books of fiqh, the classical books of fiqh written by the scholars, and you were to look into this issue of hijrah and jihad, you find that the earlier scholars wrote about this topic different in the manner which we discuss these topics today. And the reason why is because they lived at a time when Islam was in the upper hand on earth. And it was from this perspective that they wrote about these topics. You know, if you open up any book of fiqh and you look at Kitab al-Jihad. What you'll notice in is that most of the discussion is regarding the regulations pertaining to jihad. I mean, you'll find a couple of sentences regarding what is the ruling concerning jihad. When is it fard kifaya? And when is it an obligation upon the community? When is it an obligation upon the individual? And then you'll find a long discourse concerning what occurs while on jihad, like the rules for the distribution of al-ghanimah. You find a lot of detail concerning this. I mean, can the imam of the Muslims promise a certain amount to the soldiers before they go out? And how is it to be invited if they return? Most of the discussion is regarding this. Why? Because the Muslims were a people who used to wage jihad. And so then therefore the issue was a discussion of what are the regulations that Allah has ordered us to adhere to while on the battlefield. Nowadays, when you discuss the issue of jihad, how do we normally discuss it? We normally discuss it from the point of the Muslims are under attack. How can we defend the Muslims from 
the various attacks, a very completely different perspective of it. And so therefore the issue of uh, the issue of al-ghanima and the issue of the imam, does he, can he put a certain amount uh, for the soldiers before they go forth or not, and the amounts and so forth, it does not occur in the discussion. The, the discussion is basically we are being fought and killed and slaughtered and so forth, and we need to, you know, do something. In other words, we're just having some sort of trying to take these pressures off our chest in one way or the other. Likewise, in the issue of dealing with the unbelievers, if you look at the classical books of fiqh, you find that in the kitab of jihad, you'll find a section which is called uh, Bab Aqdu Zimma, or the chapter regarding the contract, the Aqd, uh, between the Imam of the Muslims and the unbelievers who agree to live under an Islamic state in the paying of jizya, and uh, as a result they are called zimmis in English you might say, or zimma, ahlul zimma in Arabic. And the discussion there is usually that how they should not resemble the Muslims. That since they are in a state of a zimma, and they are supposed to be in a state of a sigar, and a zul, in a state of humiliation and submission to the Muslims, that part of the conditions that are upon them is that they should not resemble the Muslims, as these are the conditions which are known in Arabic as the shurut al-umariyah, or the conditions of the stipulations which were drawn up by Umar uh, during the major Islamic conquests when you had large populations of non-Muslims entering underneath uh, Islamic rule. And so therefore you find a discussion about how a Christian or a Jew who is living in a, or is under the contract of a zimma is not allowed to grow his hair of his forelock long. How that he must shave the top of his head to distinguish him from the non-Muslim, from the Muslim. And how that if the Muslims are sitting like we are sitting, he must remain standing. And if the Muslims are standing, how he must remain sitting and how that he cannot ride a horse or a camel, except uh, like on the side. I don't forget what they call it in English. So. Side saddle. And how he cannot carry and bear arms, and how he cannot wear an imama, which is one of the clothes of the Muslims. And how he cannot use one of the, uh, like the kunya of the Muslims, like calling himself Abu something, and so forth. And now, the discussion regarding Muslims is that we try to tell Muslims not to resemble the unbelievers. We don't try to discuss the issue, or it, it's difficult for us to, uh, I mean, imagine a situation where the unbelievers will be told that they should not resemble us due to their weakness and their, and their humiliation to be distinct from us. And likewise, if you look at the book of Jihad, in the books of fiqh, classical books of fiqh, you will find that they usually have a sentence or two about how Muslims should make hijrah if they are living underneath the unbelievers. If a situation occurs where, for instance, in the lands where the Muslims and the unbelievers' lands touch, the unbelievers overtake some of the lands of the Muslims, like in a battle or in a war, and how those Muslims in those lands should retreat and leave the lands of the Muslims. They never imagined, the Muslims, that you would have a situation like you have now, 
where you have whole-scale immigration of millions and millions of Muslims who seek voluntarily to live underneath the unbelievers. And millions more who wish they had the opportunity that their brethren had to come and live underneath the Muslims. Uh, the non-Muslims, excuse me. So, as a result, uh, these concepts of not resembling the unbelievers, and this concept of al-hijrah, leaving the lands of the non-Muslims to the lands of Islam, and the concept of jihad, waging jihad or fighting in the path of Allah, is strange to the ears of many Muslims. Because of the situation which we live now. To the degree that uh, they, when you discuss this topic, it results in sometimes very emotional uh, situations. Now, I don't expect that type of emotional response from the brothers uh, and sisters who have gathered here, uh, as I know most of you, if not all of you. But, I mean, just to understand that this issue uh, is a very highly charged issue, and so what we'd like to do is we'd like to discuss it, okay, and to try not to get ahead of ourselves in the subject. Let's understand the subject, and once we've understood the subject, then I can hear your comments or corrections or uh, statements, and inshallah ta'ala, I mean, I will benefit, and perhaps you might inshallah ta'ala benefit from some things I have to say. Right, the topic is very broad, and so I'd like to concentrate more on the issue of al-hijrah, uh, because I think it has more practicality uh, with regards to the action of the individual Muslim. I mean, the actions of jihad and so forth, while these are important issues, and we might bring up some of it in the question and answer, but it, it entails a lot of other issues, like the existence of a Muslim country, like the existence of an imam upon the Muslims, uh, and also a discussion of the fiqh, when is the jihad, defensive jihad, the jihad al-difari, and also when is the offensive jihad, the jihad al-hujumi, and usually when this discussion comes into, we start talking about different parts of the world and political situation. So it gets very, you know, large subject which we really can't handle. But the issue of al-hijrah is something which, you know, a person himself can make that decision whether he would live in one country or the other. And it doesn't entail uh, necessarily uh, other people to be part of that, unlike jihad and so forth. But we should understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has linked three matters often in his Qur'an. That of faith, iman, that of hijrah, and that of jihad. For instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَهَاجَرُوا وَجَاهَدُوا بِأَمْوَالِهِمْ وَأَنفُسِهِمْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَالَّذِينَ آوُوا وَنَصَرُوا أُولَٰئِكَ بَعْضَهُمْ أَوْلِيَاءُ بَعْضٍ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Anfal, the 72nd verse, He says that those who believe, iman, al-ladhina amanu, and those who make hijrah, who migrate from one land to the other, al-ladhina hajiru, second quality, وَجَاهَدُوا, they wage jihad, by their wealth and by their selves, in the path of Allah. And those who supported them and gave them victory, each of these people are the awliya, from the word al-wala, of one another. Now this verse, contextually, was revealed regarding the issue of the muhajirin and the ansar. 
that those who had faith in Mecca and who made hijrah from Mecca to Medina and waged jihad and also those in Medina, the Ansar, who supported them, that they are awliya, supporters of one another. But the verse is general in its meaning. And so therefore this shows us qualities of the believers that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is praising in his book. Those people who are having faith and those people who have, are waging hijrah or making hijrah and those people who are waging jihad and those people who are supporting in that, that they are the awliya of each other. They are the supporters of each other. And so therefore this shows us how these issues are interconnected. Faith, and then faith from faith, hijrah, and from hijrah, jihad in the path of Allah. They're connected not only in the Qur'an, but they're also connected in the seerah of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. In the sense that the Prophet uh, came with a message, some people believed, they preached the message after it was not accepted, they left to a place where it was accepted, and from there, they waged jihad. Until all of Arabia submitted, and then the other parts of the world. Uh, so, but the issue is that, as I mentioned, that uh, hijrah uh, is an issue which is uh, not only to be studied from the fiqh point of view, uh, because if we were to study the issue just from a purely fiqh uh, point of view, and just to mention the regulations of hijrah, uh, while we might benefit in terms of increasing our knowledge, uh, we want to discuss it from a practical point of view also. In the sense that, what about the issue of hijrah for the Muslim who is living in a non-Muslim context, like now, for the people who live in the West. Because this is an issue which often uh, occurs. You usually will find, uh, it's been my experience, that when this topic of hijrah is brought up by, in one reason or another, I usually find that the American brothers are asking, their first question is, okay, where do I go and where's the first plane that will take me out? And you usually find the brothers who have come from overseas are asking, hold it, where do you want us uh, to go back to? We've come from those lands. We like it well enough over here. Uh, so we, we also want to discuss the issue not just from a fiqh, we don't discuss from a fiqh point of view, but also from a practical uh, point of view. But first we should understand the issue uh, in, its, in terms of its terminology. Uh, the word al-hijrah in the Arabic language uh, literally means a tarq or to abandon, to leave. And uh, al-hijrah, when you say al-hijrah to something, al-hijrah to ila shay, uh, means to go from one thing to another thing, in, literally in the Arabic language. And according to the sharia, uh, according in the context of the sharia, the word hijrah means to leave that what Allah has prohibited. And it occurred in Islam in two ways. Uh, in the one sense, it is from a land in where people are under fear, under persecution, uh, to a land where people are in safety. Uh, like it occurred in the two hijras from Mecca to Habasha, to Ethiopia, or Abyssinia as they used to call it. Uh, this is uh, one type of hijra. In other words, the Muslims here were not going to an Islamic land, but they were going from a land where they were in fear, Mecca, because they were being persecuted, to a land, which was still an un-Islamic land, it was a Christian kingdom, but where they were safe and protected. And it's occurred twice in, when the Prophet was in Mecca. And the second type of hijrah is hijrah from the land of unbelief to the land of faith. Like occurred uh, when the Muslims 
uh, made Hijrah from Mecca to Medina. And then afterwards, when Mecca entered into the fold of Islam, uh, that type of Hijrah ended because there was no reason to leave from Mecca to Medina. And the, uh, this type of Hijrah also can occur uh, from leaving the lands of Bid'ah to the lands of Sunnah. I mean, for instance, not just only leading the lands of the unbelievers to the lands of Islam, but let's say if you're in a land of Bid'ah, where there's a heresy. For instance, the people there uh, insult the companions of the Messenger of Allah. This is the religion of the country, that they attack the Prophet's companions. So then you go to a land of the people of the Sunnah, where they love the companions of the Prophet Or from a land of sinfulness, where the people there are wicked, and they do a lot of evil deeds, and they to a land where the people are more pious, and they do not... Uh, do such uh, evil uh, deeds. And uh, hijrah is two types. A hijrah which is required of every single Muslim, male or female, uh, young or old, uh, irrespective if they speak Arabic or not, is required of them not only once in their life, but during every moment of their lives. And that is making hijrah unto Allah and hijrah unto the Prophet As the Messenger of Allah has said, that he whose hijrah is unto Allah and unto his Messenger, then his hijrah is unto Allah and unto his Messenger. This hijrah unto Allah is by worshipping Allah alone. By fleeing unto Allah. And taking Allah alone as our Lord and as our object of worship and worshipping Him and submitting to Him alone, out of our love, out of our hope of His mercy, out of our fear of His punishment, out of our tawakkul, our reliance and trust in Him, and all the different acts of worship which we give and we were created to give to Allah, whether they occur in our hearts or they occur by our limbs. And this hijrah to the Prophet ﷺ is to follow his sunnah and to leave that lifestyle which is different and contrary to the lifestyle which he came, which he was sent with to humanity, to the lifestyle that he was sent with for humanity. This is required of every single Muslim throughout his life. And uh, this type of hijrah is a hijrah which is rooted in the heart. You know, when a person makes that decision, for instance, in his life to become a Muslim, you know, he's making that hijrah. He's making that hijrah from worshipping other than Allah to the worship of Allah. He's making that hijrah from following other than the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu to believing in the Prophet and following the Prophet Sallallahu And likewise, again, in your life, you're constantly making that hijrah. Every time you stray from the path of Allah due to sinfulness or negligence or whatever, you make that hijrah back unto Allah and his messenger, وسلم, until you meet Allah on the Day of Judgment uh, with your death. The other type of hijrah is the hijrah of the body. The hijrah of the body. When you physically take yourself from one part of the world, and you put yourself in another part of the world. Uh, this hijrah follows this first hijrah. In other words, it is uh, subordinate to the first hijrah. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ said in this hadith, which I think all of us have heard, that the Prophet ﷺ said, uh, إِنَّمَا الْعَمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ 
that actions are judged by their intentions. And that for every person he has what he has intended. And then the Prophet said what? He whose hijrah is unto Allah and his messenger, then his hijrah is unto Allah and his messenger. And he whose hijrah is for a worldly matter which he wishes to gain, the dunya yasibuha, or for a woman he wants to marry her, or imra'ata yankiruha, fahijratuhu ila ma hajara ilayhi. Then his hijrah is to whatever he went to. So this shows us that this physical hijrah is subordinate to the hijrah of the heart unto Allah and unto his Prophet. And this is why the Prophet in this hadith mentions that there is a person who might, you know, move, but in actuality his hijrah is not for Allah and his messenger. But his hijrah is because he wants to gain some worldly benefit. Or because he wants to marry a woman who happens to be in that, in other words, some worldly interest. And so therefore, since deeds are judged by their intentions, his hijrah is not unto Allah and his messenger, but his hijrah is to whatever he went for. So then therefore, this type of, this hijrah, uh, is uh, subordinate to the first hijrah. Now, our discussion here, is not regarding hijrah unto Allah and his messenger, even though that's the foundation. And that needs to be discussed. And every Muslim must know it, because it's required of every single Muslim. In other words, how to worship Allah, Tawheed, and how to follow the Prophet, this is required that we all know and understand and practice this. But our discussion is to that physical hijrah, the hijrah of the body from one place of the earth to the other place of the earth which is subordinate to the first one. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in His Qur'an, a very serious verse that we should contemplate for those who live amongst non-Muslims, for those who are amongst non-Muslims. Allah says, That those who the angels come to seizing their souls at the time of death, because you know, when a person dies, Allah sends the angels to take his soul out, and these people, when their souls are being removed from their body, they are in a state where they have caused injustice to themselves. Wul, to their selves. The angels will say to them, Qalu, fima kuntum? Who are you living amongst? They will reply, these people at death, uh, to the angels, Qalu kunna mustad'afina fil ard. We were weak in the earth. Oppressed. Was Allah's earth not wide enough for you to immigrate or pass through? Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, These, their abodes will be the hellfire. And what an evil return. Then Allah makes an exception. مِنَ الرِّجَالِ وَالنِّسَاءِ وَالْوِلْدَانِ لَا يَسْتُطِيعُونَ حِيلًا وَلَا يَحْتَجُونَ سَبِيلًا فَأُولَئِكَ عَصَى اللَّهُ أَنْ يَعْفُوا عَنْهُمْ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ, الله عَفُوًا غَفُورًا Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that with the exception of those who were really weak in the earth, oppressed, they could not uh, find among men and women and children. See, Allah mentioned among men, women and children who could not find 
the means to make hijrah, or they could not find the path to make hijrah. Uh, these, perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will overlook their sin, forgive them. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is one who overlooks and he's forgiven. So this is a very serious verse. Because, you know, people, if they're going to live somewhere, then some of them are going to die there. And one does not know when he dies how Allah is going to treat him. I mean, a Muslim should never be uh, in the state where he feels that he's going to go to paradise without doubt. And that his judgment is safe with Allah. In the same way, a Muslim should never feel despondent. He should never feel that there is no hope or, or mercy for his soul. But rather, a Muslim should think well of Allah and think that Allah will treat him mercifully, but at the same time be fearful. He should have both feelings of, of hope for his mercy and fearful for his punishment. And so therefore, you know, we know that Muslims die, and if Muslims live among these unbelievers, of course there are going to be Muslims who are going to die. And so if a person dies while living amongst the unbelievers, there is a possibility, I mean, that this verse might apply to him. I mean, he's under this danger that the angels might come to him at the time of death and ask him, Fima kuntum? Who were you amongst? He might say, I was weak on earth. I didn't have the means. And he might have not been truthful in that. He might have had the ability. And so concerning this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that the angels will say, was Allah's earth not wide enough for you to travel in? To migrate in? And that these would have the punishment of the hellfire. It was an evil abode. And yet there are some, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, who are really oppressed, really weak on the earth. Among men and women and children. And so these, perhaps Allah will overlook that and forgive them. And Allah is one, Allah describes, that he overlooks, falls, and he's forgiving. Uh, Ibn Kathir says this in his tafsir. He says that this verse, this noble verse, هذه الآية الكريمة, is general regarding everyone who lives amongst the mushrikeen and is able to uh, make hijrah and is unable to establish his religion amongst them. He has committed an injustice to his soul. He has done something which is forbidden by the ijma' I mean by the consensus of all the Muslim scholars. And by the verdict of this verse, will be ayah. And then Allah Subhanahu wa then He explains. He says, whereas Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says that those who the angels seize their soul uh, and they have caused injustice to themselves, Ibn Kathir says, by them not doing hijrah. This is the injustice they have caused themselves. The angels will say to them, "Fima uh, kuntum? Where were you? Uh, who are you amongst?" And in other words, Ibn Kathir says, why have you, and this means, why have you lived here and not done hijrah? And they will reply that we were oppressed. Ibn Kathir says, that means they will say that they were unable to leave that land. They had no ability. So then, then it will be said to them, was not Allah's earth wide enough for you? And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains that, as I mentioned, that there are some who really were unable uh, to uh, leave uh, the land because they had no means 
to get out of the land of the unbelievers. Or they had the means, but they did not know how to leave the land of the unbelievers. In other words, the path that they should take to leave was unaware to them. So these, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, would uh, forgive them. Now, uh, and also we find uh, that the Prophet sallam, in many hadith uh, discussed the issue of hijrah. Uh, for instance, he says, uh, the Prophet sallam, in a hadith reported by Nisa'i, <coughs> that uh, the Prophet sallam, uh, uh, said that a, or a man reports that uh, bin Hakim, or Hakim said that his father said, that his grandfather said, that he said, O Messenger of Allah, or O Prophet of Allah, Ya Nabiullah. Um, I did not come to you until I swore uh, so many times that I would not come to you or follow your religion. In other words, the man is explaining that in beginning, he was against the Prophet So he said to the Messenger, he said, Oh, by Allah, I swore so many times that I would neither come to you nor follow your religion. And I am a person uh, who is not, um, you know, understanding anything except for what Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, has taught me. In other words, I'm ignorant. He's saying to the Prophet sallallahu So he's saying to the Prophet sallallahu that he wasn't planning on following Islam, that he had sworn so many times he would not follow Islam or follow the Prophet, but he's finally coming, and he doesn't know anything except for what Allah and His Messenger are teaching him. So then he asked the Messenger. He said, I ask you in the name of, uh, in, uh, by, by Allah's face, Azzawajal, what has Allah sent you with to us? And so the Prophet ﷺ said, Bin Islam. And so then the man said, okay, what are the signs of Islam? And the Prophet ﷺ, so here's a man who just became Muslim, who's asking the Prophet ﷺ, okay, what is Islam? So how the Prophet respond to the man. He says, and taqul aslamtu that you say, I have submitted myself unto Allah. And you establish a prayer. And you give the zakah. And that every Muslim is haram upon the other Muslim. In other words, you cannot take the right of another Muslim. It's, it's invoyable for you. That they are brothers as aiding one another. And then look what this is, a very important hadith, the, the part of the hadith. That the Prophet said, that Allah Azza wa Jal will not accept from the mushrik after he has become a Muslim any deed until he leaves the mushrikeen to the Muslimin. لا يقبل الله عز وجل من مشرك بعدما أسلم عملا أو يفارق المشركين إلى المسلمين. This is a very serious hadith. A man is coming to the Prophet says, I know nothing about Islam. I mean, to the degree he's even asking the Prophet ﷺ, what did Allah send you with? The Prophet ﷺ said, with Islam. So the man said, okay, what is this Islam? The Prophet ﷺ said, it's to submit to Allah, this is the Tawheed, to establish the prayer, to give the zakah, and that Muslims are supporting each other. They're brothers supporting each other. And that it's forbidden to take something from another Muslim, that he's haram upon you, in the sense that you cannot take his wealth or his blood, or, you know, do any harm to him. And then he said that Allah does not accept the deed of a mushrik who becomes a Muslim until he leaves the mushrikeen to the Muslim. Uh, this hadith is reported uh, by Nisa'i and Ibn Majah.
<coughs> and likewise, Abu Dawood uh, reports in his book, Sunan, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa has said, أَنَا بَرِيءٌ مِنْ كُلِّ مُسْلِمٍ يُقِيمْ بَيْنَ أَصْهُرِ الْمُشْرِكِينَ <coughs> that the Prophet ﷺ said, I have nothing to do with any Muslim who lives amongst the mushriks. This is another hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. Uh, likewise, um, Imam Ashokani uh, comments upon uh, this, or the, the hadith has a completion which I um, uh, 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 neglected, neglected to mention. Uh, where they said, قَالُوا يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ لِمَا O Messenger of Allah, why? I mean, what, or why or what is the meaning of this? The Prophet ﷺ said that you do not, they do not see their fires. That the, the Muslim and the Mushrik cannot see each other's fires. And Shokani explains this in his book, Nail Al-Far, that this means that the Muslim should not be in a place so close to the unbeliever where each of them can see each other's camp. Uh, and that, you know, this obviously in this time we do not use fire, I mean, to light ourselves, and we use electricity. It's the same meaning, right? I sure kind of didn't say that, but I'm saying that. That it's the same meaning. I mean, that of electricity, right? I mean, even though we don't use camps and so forth, because we have now electricity and so forth, but it's the same meaning in the sense that we shouldn't be able to see the lights of the unbelievers, and they shouldn't be able to see the lights of our dwellings, because of the distance between us and them. Um, and likewise, uh, the Prophet ﷺ said in the hadith of Abu Dawood, "Man al-mushrik ma'ahu mithlahu." That he who lives uh, amongst the mushrik, he is like him, or he is equal to him. And likewise, uh, the Prophet ﷺ said another hadith reported by Abu Dawood, "La tanqata' al-hijra hatta tanqata' al-tawbah." ولا تنقطع التوبة حتى تطلع الشمس من مغربها. That hijrah will not come to an end until tawbah, repentance, comes to an end. And repentance will not come to an end until the sun rises from the west. Because, you know, one of the major signs before the Day of Judgment is that the sun will rise from the west. Uh, at that time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not accept the tawbah of any unbeliever who enters into Islam. And likewise, at that time, nope, if a person has not done any good in his life, Allah will not accept any good that is done thereafter. This is one of the final signs just before the Day of Judgment. I mean, the rising of the sun from the west comes after uh, the return of Isa, and after the, uh, the killing of Dajjal upon him, and after Isa's death, and after the appearance of Ya'juj and Ma'juj, Gog and Magog. I mean, all these signs pass, and then the sun comes from the west. So it's one of the very final signs just before the destruction of the heavens and the earth. Uh, and this hadith also was reported by Adarami and in Nisa'i. And likewise, uh, we find that the Prophet ﷺ said in the hadith, uh, reported by Nisa'i, uh, that the, one of the Prophet's companions, uh, Wa'il, uh, or no, excuse me, Jarir, uh, says that I, I gave bay'ah, I gave my pledge of allegiance to the Messenger of Allah, that I would do the prayers an iqam al-salah wa ita'a zakah and I would give the zakah wa nusr li kulli muslim that I would give nasiha, I would be sincere to every muslim wa ala firaq al-mushrik and that I would leave the mushrik. 
So here the Prophet used to take the bay'ah from the people and they used to enter into Islam. That, that's just pledge that they would do prayers, that they would give zakah, that they would be sincere to every single Muslim. And at the same time that they would leave the mushriks. And uh, likewise, um, uh, Al-Bayhaqi reports in a long hadith um, <coughs> that the Prophet ﷺ wrote a letter to some Muslims. And in it, it, it was, uh, Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim in the name of Allah, or uh, seeking the name uh, aid of Allah, who is ar-Rahman, the merciful, ar-Rahim, the one who shows mercy. هذا كتاب من محمد النبي رسول الله ببني زهير بن قيش. That the Prophet ﷺ said, this is the letter from Muhammad, the Prophet, the Messenger of Allah, to this tribe of Arabs. And it says, the letter says, that if you testify that there is none worthy of worship but Allah, and you do the prayer, and you give the zakah, and you leave the mushrikeen, and you give from that ghana'im, the money, the booty you take in jihad, al-khumus, a fifth of it, uh, and a portion to the Prophet Wasallam. Uh, you have then فَأَنْتُمْ آمِنُونَ بِأَمَانِ اللَّهِ وَأَمَانِ رَسُولِهِ You are safe then by the, uh, you know, the promise given to you by Allah and His Messenger. So in other words, this tribe of um, Arab Muslims, who were Bedouins, uh, they were told that unless they left the, uh, you know, that it wasn't sufficient for them to testify uh, the testimony of faith, but they also had to do the prayers, give the zakah, give a portion of the booty which is collected in their jihad to the Prophet Sallallahu which is known as al-Khumas, which means there's the jihad, and also they had to leave the mushrikeen. I mean, they couldn't stay with their tribe if some of the tribe members were mushrikeen. And likewise, that the Prophet ﷺ has said, in a hadith reported by Al-Tabarani, uh, he said that the Prophet ﷺ said, Leave the seven major sins. So the people were silent. Nobody speaking. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, Will you not ask me regarding them? What are these seven sins? And then he said, Ashirku billah, to shirk regarding Allah, and to kill a soul, to take a soul's life, and uh, to flee from the battlefield, and to consume the wealth of the orphan, meaning unjustly, and to consume usury, and to uh, charge a chaste woman with illicit sex. And the seventh one, to become a Bedouin, a desert Arab, after making hijrah. At-ta'arrub ba'd al-hijrah. Shaykh al-Albani, which I guess most of you know of, uh, commented on this hadith. And this is interesting because he's, of course, a contemporary scholar. Uh, he said that, like at-ta'arrub ba'd al-hijrah, to become a Bedouin Arab after making hijrah, I mean living from the desert, coming to live with the Muslims and going back to live amongst in, in the desert. Uh, similar to this is a taghrub, to go and live in the West. And uh, he said, except for uh, 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 emergency or compulsion. And that some people call this hijrah. And uh, this is turning the reality of affairs upside down, uh, which we have uh, suffering from uh, during this age. In other words, that Muslims in this age uh, turn things upside down in the sense that they call that which is haram 
halal and halal and haram, and they also call, uh, you know, this, uh, they call this hijrah. I mean, it's very common now in Arabic that you say, if you, a person comes to live in America, oh, he made hijrah to America, you know. Hajar in America. And this is opposite of the term of the Sharia, because hijrah is to leave the lands of the unbelievers uh, to the lands of the Muslims, not to go from the lands of the Muslims to the lands of the unbelievers. And then he says, فَإِنَّ الْهِجْرَةَ إِنَّمَا تَكُونُ مِنْ بِلَادِ الْكُفْرِ إِلَى بِلَادِ الْإِسْلَامِ because Hijrah, as I just mentioned, is to leave the lands of Kufr to the lands of Islam. Okay, so now if we understand this is a very serious topic, right? I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has warned us about those people who the angel Caesar sold the time of death. We find that the Prophet used to take bay'ah from people to leave the mushrikeen. That he would not consider them Muslims unless they left the mushrikeen. Or that they would not, not consider the Muslims, but the fact that they would not be under the protection of Allah, which means that they're, and the Prophet which means their blood could be shed. And likewise, we find that the Prophet told us that the mushrik who becomes a Muslim, his deed would not be accepted by Allah until he leaves the land of the unbelievers. So the question is now, what is the ruling concerning living amongst the unbelievers? Uh, there's different categories. And some scholars have uh, divided up to six groups of people living underneath the unbelievers. And so let us uh, mention them. First of all, they all agree that irrespective of these six categories, a Muslim cannot be amongst the unbelievers unless he fulfills two conditions. Uh, the first is that he is able to establish his religion. And he's able to show, manifest his religion. These are the two conditions. Uh, that he is he, you know, he is able to practice his religion. He's able to also manifest his religion, as we will explain what that means. And so then, therefore, they mention the six categories. And the first category is those people who come to the lands of the unbelievers uh, in order to make da'wah. In order to make da'wah. Uh, like, uh, uh, for the purpose of calling to Islam and encouraging people, you know, to become Muslims. Or encouraging those Muslims who live here to be stronger in their religion. Uh, this is a type of jihad unto Allah. And uh, therefore, uh, if a person is able to do this, and there is nothing which is going to uh, hold him from giving da'wah, there's no restrictions upon him, then this is permissible for him to then to go to give these people da'wah. Even though we should understand, and this is something very important that people forget sometimes, that it is not known that any of the Salaf, any of the Prophet's companions, traveled to the lands of the unbelievers for the purpose of living there, just for the sake of da'wah. I mean, how did Islam spread to these lands outside of Arabia? It spread through jihad. Not in the sense that the people were compelled to enter into Islam, but that the Sahaba, as the Allah's command came, uh, and the Prophet ﷺ taught, you know, told these people that they should submit to the Muslim rule. And if they did, that's fine. If they want to become Muslims, they are our brothers. If not, they would pay jizya. And if not, they would be fought. And so when these people were then under an Islamic environment, they came into Islam in droves. Because you see, once all the different evils are removed from people that set them astray, uh, many people will accept the religion. And so therefore you don't find any, you cannot find any of the Prophet's companions who just like for instance got into a boat 
and went off to some island of uninhabited natives, you know, like we think of the Christian missionary and so forth, and sat with there, you know, teaching them how to fish and how to sew clothes and so forth, in the hope that they would slowly become Muslims. This never happened. Uh, this type of concept, you know, of going out in the earth to give da'wah to the unbelievers and so forth, only occurred when the Muslims became incapable and weak of waging jihad, the offensive jihad. And that occurred when? That occurred around the year 1699. Uh, that was probably like the last time the Muslims did an offensive battle of jihad, the year 1699, uh, which means how many? It's almost 300 years now. The last 300 years, Muslims have just been on the defensive uh, since that, in retreat. The last, uh, the last battle that the Muslims had, offensive battle, was in the year 1699 in Oslo. And for those of us who have entered into Islam, and because of the situation in the Islamic world, Allah has decreed that, you know, we came into Islam at a time when the Muslims were weak and following the unbelievers instead of leading the world. And so therefore, we're unable to make hijrah. These the Muslims would not accept us, or we do not have the means. Or for those of us who had to leave the land of the Muslims for one reason or the other, and find themselves in the lands of the unbelievers, they should fear Allah as much as they can. But in their heart they should remember that this is not the place where they are a Muslim should be. And at the same time they should fear this verse of the Quran that those who the angels seize their souls at the time of death and ask them, where were you? Because even though Allah has said that there are some which are truly oppressed in the earth, amongst men and women and children, that Allah will forgive, still there are some who Allah would not forgive and will go to hell because of not making it. So one should never be satisfied or one should not be certain with his soul. Just like when you make prayer now. I mean, you do the prayer, and you hope that Allah accepts the prayer. But does one know when he says, As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah, as-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah, that Allah has accepted his prayer? Is he say, okay, alhamdulillah, I did my prayer, I shouldn't worry about it. No, he should fear. And that's why it's reported by the salaf, or upon the salaf, that concerning the fast of Ramadan, they used to pray to Allah six months, that they would reach Ramadan. And after they would fast a month, they would pray to Allah for the remaining months of the year, that Allah would accept from them their fast of Ramadan. This is how their attitude was. Anyway, uh, that is uh, what I want to talk about uh, regarding hijrah. And I know I didn't speak about uh, jihad, but let me uh, give a chance for you all to answer, plus ask questions and hear your comments or any suggestions or whatever. And uh, then, inshallah, maybe during the question and answer period, we can bring up some of the issues regarding jihad. <laughs>